Psalm 16, verse 11 says, In thy presence is the fullness of joy. Uh, the choir was talking about the presence of Jehovah. It is a joyous place to be in God's presence. As well as it says, In thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you want to have the joy of the Lord, the pleasures of God that are eternal, it's done in the presence of God. Um, and, and that can be done anywhere. Uh, but it's done by the grace of God. It's done by faith. But it's so special when you're doing it with God's people together. Uh, there's a uniqueness uh, of that. You know, one of the things I've learned, and, and the Lord's blessed me in, in going to various places around the world, uh, meeting believers. One of the things I've learned is that being a believer means something just a little bit different in every country. Um, I, it, this hit me when I was in Kenya, and uh, I was working with the Maasai people, uh, and, and they came to me, and they, and they would ask me, um, do, you, do Christians in America eat pig? <laughs> I said, oh yeah, <laughs> in a whole new way. And they were shocked. I said, Really? We, we don't eat pig. Um, that, that, that's what unbelievers do. I said, do they smoke? I said, yeah, yeah, I know some. Um, and they were even more shocked at that. Because for them, to be in a Maasai, to be different as a believer, one of the things is they've done is they said, there's some things we don't eat. Because they live in a culture where they would drink blood. Uh, and they said, we know we've read in the Old Testament, this is just something we, you're to do, and, and so we don't do these things, and, and this is what it means to be a Maasai believer, and, and one of the things they struggle with is, is that uh, in marriage that they have one woman, um, because among Maasai, there is a, uh, in a society a common sharing of wives uh, that occur. And so I, I found out that to be a believer as a Maasai looks somewhat different. Uh, um, it has different shades because of their society is different. And, and to, to have these touch points means to be in a very, very different from the rest. Uh, when I went to India, I, I learned a little bit of what this, this means. That if you want to be a believer and you live in India or live in Nepal, you don't say namaste uh, to each other. Uh, that's the common greeting uh, because that's recognizing the God that's within you greets the God that's within you. Or with me greets the God within you. A very Hindu idea. And so they have a, another greeting, and, and, and they don't celebrate Diwali, and they don't, uh, they don't do some of these things that's, that's uh, part of Hinduism. Um, and they show compassion, uh, where the Hinduism system says, don't be compassionate, because they're in this situation because of some past life. And so it meant something totally different uh, to be a Hindu, or to be an Indian and a believer. You don't, you don't burn... Years ago, you, you wouldn't burn your wife just because the, the, the man dies. And that was a, a common theme back then. And Christianity came in and changed some of that. Um, when I went to uh, Belarus, uh, one of the things I learned is that believers smile in that country. And just having a joy in your heart and joy in your life made you different from other people. And in fact, government officials would mark believers because of a, a smile in their face, a joy in their eyes. And they said, you're one of them, aren't you? Uh, and 
we were in China. It, it, again, it looked just a little bit different to be a believer in China. I mean, just the fact that you're talking about Jesus Christ. You know, here it's kind of cliche if you wear a t-shirt that has some Christian verse on it. But if you did that over there, um, you know, it's not cliche. You, you've marked yourself. Um, there, there's a giving aspect, and, I, and I've been thinking about that as, as recently coming from China to America and, and looking, looking at the prosperity that's there in China. And I started asking myself, I was reading the passages that we were going to be talking about today and the next few weeks, and I, I started asking myself, and I don't know this, I don't know the heart of God in this, but I, I thought, could it be that the prosperity of a nation is switching from America to that of China because the believers in China are sowing seeds, sowing seeds of materials for the kingdom of God. I don't know, but it could very well be something that God may be doing. Um, so I, the question came to me as I examined these things, what does it mean to be a believer in America? What makes us different? And this is hard for us to figure out because it's like watching your own children grow up. It's, it's hard to recognize uh, because you're, you're there in the midst of it. But the thought started occurring to me in the last couple of weeks as, as we've been talking about Hebrews, special chapters uh, 10, 11, 12, 13. What does it mean to be a man, a woman of faith? What does this look like? As, as we've been to the study on Wednesday night, as we've talked about this past week with, um, with Lonnie Riley, it could very well be that the touch point for believers in America isn't necessarily whether you have a smile on your face, but you have generosity in your heart. It could very well be that that is what makes us very different from the typical American. And it's the point that we don't want to talk about. I mean, you, I, I remember the first, the first sermon I did here was on Proverbs chapter 3, and uh, verses, I think, 5 through 10. This is, you know, everybody's voting on me and all that. And, um, you know, verse 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with all your substance, the first fruits of all you increase, so then your barns will be filled with plenty of vats burst out with new wine. And, and I remember finishing up and talking to the search committee, said, you preached on, on, on tithing. You preached on giving. Yeah, we, we want you, as a pastor here, you did like the exact opposite of what folks should do. Because everyone knows that if a preacher preaches on, on giving, then it, you just, you automatically don't like it. And you don't like him, and you don't like what he's talking about. Um, I thought, well, you know what, we're going to see if the Lord's in this. <laughs> uh, let's, let's kind of shoot for the juggler in some of this. Uh, and so... You know, there's some resistance because we don't want to, uh, we don't want to come across as, hey, um, give us all, all your money because the church needs all this money so we can do all this nice stuff. And I deal with that, and I don't want to come across as that. In fact, it may seem like I'm trying to persuade you not to give every once in a while to our church. It'll sound like that every once in a while. Uh, because I want it to be done for the right reason if you're going to do this. Um, you know, there are some churches... In Europe, in Western Europe, they have a church tax. Did you know that? There are some places that have church taxes. Uh, because you are, are born in a church, you were baptized uh, as a baby or as a child as part of this church, bam, all of a sudden, 
You start, if you have an income, 8% or whatever percentage may be is going to go to the church. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I thought you'd think. Uh, <laughs> there's some drawbacks to that. Some big time drawbacks. There's some perks, but there's some drawbacks to that. Should a church just do anything they can to get money? I, I've shared uh, from the pulpit numerous times. Um, I don't believe in fundraisers for a church. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. It's, it's a man-made device. Something like church tax. If we don't do church tax, I'm going to say some of the reasons why we don't do church tax also applies to why we don't do fundraisers. So... I don't want to share this with you. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8 is what we're going to look at in chapter 9, these two chapters for the next uh, few weeks. Uh, we're going to take a few months to talk about generosity. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about this because of lack of giving in to our church. That, that, that's, that's there, but there could be any number of reasons why that's there. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to assume anything. But, when I look at that, and I look at the times that we're in, economic difficulty, there is pressure on our heart to lose the very reason behind generosity. And we don't see the reason of generosity, and we, we have fears that dominate. And, and because of economic, this happens in economic good times, in which we talked about stewardship back then, and it happens in economic bad times, where we are threatened to no longer live out our faith. Um, and, and so I think it's important for us to look at generosity, whether it goes toward the church or toward your neighbor or to a, uh, a friend or to some international uh, nonprofit ministry, any number of ways God may direct you. But generosity is a sign of salvation. All right? I want to present that to you. That it is an evidence of... Of God working in our heart. And it could very well be one of the greatest apologetic in our society is to be generous people. You know what that means, apologetic? Defense of the faith. It's not so much that you're going to always win this argument by proving that God exists. Or that Jesus exists. Or that resurrection exists. Or the Bible is reliable. All these are good directions, good things to talk about. But it could very well be that when a watching world that doesn't believe in God sees the generosity of God's people that flies smack in the face of materialism, uh, of, of an atheistic point of view, God starts speaking in people's hearts when that happens. So, with these thoughts in mind, I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, as we, Before we read this, let me just share a little bit about what's going on. Uh, Paul uh, this is one of the churches, this is a troubled church, very, very troubled church. This is like the church that no one really wants to be in when you realize what's going on. Um, but nonetheless, in the first first letter, he gives them serious rebukes, serious steps of correction. But along the way, he has also encouraged them to give, all right? Because uh, in the Judea area, around Jerusalem, there is a famine that's taken place. There's persecution that's taken place. It's been prophesied through various people in the church around the world that these things are going to happen in times of trouble. And so Paul is going out and he spends a good bit of his time 
recruiting people, recruiting churches around the world to raise up a, a gift to be able to give to the church in Judea to minister to the needs there. In fact, one of the reasons he goes back to Rome, though it's prophesied that he will be persecuted in chains for going there, is so that he can bring the gift to the church, uh, back to Jerusalem, rather. Um, and that's why he goes. And so he's written to them previously. They were starting a collection, giving. And then in this time of rebuke, he's worried that maybe, maybe they're going to forget about Paul uh, and forsake him now because he's the one rebuking them. And so he sends this second letter and he sends Titus ahead to say, I, I want to just make sure that this ministry is being done in your heart, that you understand why we have giving. Okay? And, I, and in this, I want to just be able to share with you why we as a church give, why we operate by the gifts of God's people. It's not just because there's needs. There are needs, but not what you think. The need is found in our heart. That God wants to do something through the process of giving. It becomes actually an expression of our faith. And so we're going to talk about what grace giving is. All right, This is the idea that we're not giving just as a tithe. The, the 10%, but we're giving out the concept of grace, what God has done for us. Uh, the tithe was an Old Testament idea that you find Jesus endorsed in Luke chapter 11, that he endorses this concept of, of verse, in verse 42 of a tithe. But in the same book of Luke, we find in chapter 19, he commends someone who gives 50%, all right, not just 10%. He says, here's someone who's giving 50%, and he commends them. And then Luke chapter 18, he finds a rich young ruler, and he commends them, or instructs them to give 100%. All right, then he also commends uh, the widow who does the same. And so 10%, 50%, 100%, Jesus endorses all these. And so for those of us who like to say, well, you know, just 10% belongs to God, I would just introduce to you what Jesus has to say, um, that when you have this concept of God saving you by grace, then there's no number that's too high because you've been saved by grace, all right? Um, and so there's not specific instructions. It seems like 10% is a starting point, but Jesus commends all types of percentages um, up and above 10% that we see. It's just, it just so happens that I don't know of a time in Scripture where someone gives less um, uh, in, in the New Testament that's commended. Uh, so with that thought in mind, Let's go to Luke, I mean, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and let's look at this. I just want to share uh, seven uh, observations about grace giving as, as we go through. Uh, and so, in honor of this being the Word of God, let's stand as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to go through the first 15 verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, on their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly... We urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. 
I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered, gathered little had no lack. You may be seated. So the first thing he does in encouraging this church in Corinth is he uses an example of another church. Um, now that's not usually a good way um, working with your kids or, or anyone else just to, to, to do this, but he provides them as an example, referring to the church of Macedonia. This would include the church of Philippi, uh, the church of Berea, the church of Thessalonica. These are the three uh, churches that we know about that are in this Macedonia area. This is the, where, the area Paul went because he had a vision, an angel speaking to him, telling him, or a man telling him, come to Macedonia. Uh, in his vision. And so he goes there and God does a tremendous work there. And now God is using this church uh, to inspire others. Now, first of all, I want you to note in verse 1 uh, that he says, first, this act of generosity is a effect of God's grace. You see this? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Uh, and then he describes their situation. He says, this, these people have been given God's grace. So what does it look like when we have God's grace? Well, notice what he says in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction. Okay, we can learn here. God's grace does not equal freedom from affliction. All right? God's grace was given, and there is still an abundant amount of affliction. Sometimes we're thinking, you know what? If, if God's grace is going to come to us, then we ought to get better. This is what we call the prosperity gospel. Um, we hear it a lot. As long as you have faith, trust in God, God will give you grace so that you will do well in your life financially. You'll do well in your life physically. The problem is the Bible with that. It just doesn't teach that. It just does not teach that. They refer to Old Testament uh, characters, which was a, a time when God was building up a people, building up a nation to display the glory of God. In the New Testament, he's not displaying building up a nation. He's building up people instead to go out and be the vessels of God's Spirit. And so he's, he's operating differently as far as through Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God working in his people. There's no need anymore for this abundance uh, of, uh, to say that if you're going to be honoring to God, then God's going to honor you with wealth. You see that in the Old Testament, but you do not see that reciprocated in the New Testament. You don't see that parallel in the New Testament. A lot of things in the Old Testament that was given, you'll see a continuation of it in the New Testament. But you don't see that. You don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, you see a lot of times Jesus saying, yeah, it's going to get tough for you. <laughs> um, you're going to have to lay down your life. But you don't have that same promise in the New Testament that's continued on from the Old Testament. Uh, and so uh, we, we've got this grace coming 
and their still severe test of affliction. But you notice also their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. God's grace does not make us exempt from poverty. How about that? That's not necessarily what we want to hear, is it? Um, but you have an example of the Macedonians. God's grace is given, but there is extreme poverty that's going on there. So God's grace is given despite the fact that there's affliction, despite the fact there's poverty. It does not make us exempt from this. Um, but notice, we keep on reading here. He says, but they gave, anyway, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Notice verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. What does this tell me? God, grace, giving out of grace, doesn't require abundance. Do you need to understand that? Giving out of grace does not require abundance. Every once in a while I hear folks say, well, you know what, when, when my economic situation gets a little bit more settled, then I'm going to give. All right, you just don't see that in the Macedonian example. Why? Because the basis for our giving is not abundance. The basis for our giving is God's grace. It dictates, it dictates what I do, not whether or not there's a certain amount of money in my checkbook. Now, that being said, you're not going to give what you don't have. All right? And that's the problem with credit cards. Is that we're living life with money we don't have. And so consequently, when we have the direction and burden in our heart to give, we can't because we have no money. And so that brings in a whole other issue. Crown financial courses are great in this regard of what it means to live life debt-free. But I'm just going to share with you, living life debt-free is so that you can be generous. The whole end goal of that is to be generous. Now, there's, a, there's another type of gospel here. You've got the prosperity gospel, then you've got the, the, the poverty gospel. That's, that's where it said, you know what, you should never have anything nice. I mean, feel guilty about that, that breakfast you had this morning. Because think about what that could have done in, in another situation. How many people could that have fed? And so, if anybody is wealthy, then they're automatically condemned. All right? Now, that's, that's what you call poverty gospel. Um, but instead, what you see in the scripture is generosity gospel. Of what this means, that all this that we have is so that we can be generous and to be able to give out. And so uh, we see here that this is something that God is doing in their life as a product of his grace working in their life. And so it doesn't require abundance. It's fueled by the grace of God. So even if there's very little like the widow who gives just a couple of mites. Jesus says, well, she recognized what God has done and still gives. Because our basis for giving is God's grace. Now, let's keep on reading here. Um, we'll see in verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. What does this tell us? Grace giving is done eagerly. Eagerly. Grace giving is done eagerly. You know when God's grace is working in your heart because there is a desire to give. There is not a reluctance. There is not a compulsion. There is not a coercion involved in this. 
You just flat out want to give. And that's what he experienced here with the Macedonian church. He's like, you know, we were just exposing this opportunity, this need, and I know they didn't have much, but, but they were just insisting upon me, we want to give. There is a desire in a heart that's been touched by God's grace that they don't live for things anymore. They've seen something grander that they want to, to give to someone else. And now, it, here's the difference between coercion and desire, isn't it? Uh, when I was young, going to the fair, I had a sister that loved the rides. When I was younger, I didn't really like the rides. But she had no other person to go with her. Mom wasn't doing it. Dad was no way doing it. And so I was the hapless victim. And, uh, and she would persuade me, because she's four years older than me, um, you're going to love it. You're gonna, it's going to be great. You know, this is going to be awesome. You've got to go. I'm like, oh. I didn't want to go. And when I got on that ride, it was obvious. I didn't want to be there. And my sister's screaming her head off. I'm in the corner, quiet. My face is white. I'm just like, oh. I'm just like, where's my happy place? You know, just <laughs> thinking, I hope I can get out of here. Something happened along the way. I don't know. I got coerced too many times and my brain cells died. And now, I want to be on those rides. If it goes upside down, oh, that's great, you know? Yeah, I want, this, I want this, those dives. And now I'm looking at someone else and, you know, trying to coerce them. And they're, oh, just like, you know, they're quiet, they're white. It's like, uh, you know. There's, it's, can you can tell the difference between coercion and you have a heart Eager for this. Now, see, this is where we become an apologetic to our society. When we have hearts wanting to give, wanting to be a blessing, wanting to be generous, this is not the norm. You see, I am naturally a tightwad. That's just my, my, my main mode of operating is, yeah, let's hoard this deal, you know. Um, I don't want to see money go. This, this is my tendency, and now it's, my wife can tell you there's a bit of a reversal on that, um, but that's, uh, that's our natural tendency, isn't it? it? It's either to spend so much money so that we can get great identity from this, you know, to get the latest and greatest, best, or whatever, or it's to hoard it so that we've got this stockpile somewhere, the Ebenezer Scrooge mentality of, yeah, life is better now because I have security. But none way, none the, either way, we find identity in it. But here's the generous person. <laughs> They're not doing it for themselves. They're just giving it out there. And helping people and being a blessing. There has been a change in a heart. See, the Bible talks about if anyone be is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. It's, it's kind of like uh, since before I walked in Christ, I was a dead man walking. I had a dead heart. I had a dead mind. I had a dead way of thinking. I had a dead perspective on eternity. and had a dead view of other people. And I was just breathing in death. But... The Spirit of God does a heart attack on my heart and kills that dead person walking with a heart attack. And a spiritual heart attack that begins anew with a new way of thinking, a new perspective, 
I don't think the same way anymore about money because I've seen that God owns it all. He's granted it all to me to begin with, my intellect and ability to be able to make money and accumulate for that business accumulate and all the various ways that we do this. God has established these things in my life, in my heart. They will belong to him one day. Ultimately, I'm just stewarding these things and I much rather live for Christ because he's so much more. And my security is found in him. My identity is found in him, not whether or not I've got the next car. You know, whether you've got the next car with all of the stuff on it. And people think, hey, you know what? My identity's found in that, you know? The bass thumping, the, the wheels spinning, you know? Um, <laughs> some of you got that right? <laughs> no. Yeah, but we have our own ways of doing it, don't we? Of getting our identity found. Now God is changing our heart. And now we are eager to give. And so he says, this is their example here. In this verse, verse 11, uh, verse 12, you, you see this, this same thing. He says, talking to the, now the church in Corinth, now finish doing also, that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there, there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, they want to do this. It is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. Don't give what you don't have, but have a desirous heart about this. Notice verse 8. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Interesting. This whole thing about verse 2. Verse 3, their grace giving, flowing out of the abundance of joy. He calls that in verse 8, love. He says, I want this love to be in you, Corinth. What's love? What, you know, the Bible says something about love, doesn't it? He says, I want you to love God with all your heart. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. What does love look like? It looks like the overflow of joy, the joy of God in your life that extends out to others. It's called generosity. What is generosity? It is the overflow of God's joy in our life that we extend to others around us. You see why it's important for us to be generous? If we say that we're not generous, it's saying that we don't have an overflow of the joy of God in our life. It's what's being declared at that moment. You know, Robert Murray McChaney, he's, uh, he's been one of my heroes, the ones that inspire me. When he made a statement, he's a, an old, uh, he was a Scottish preacher a long time ago, died, I think, about 29. He says this, the more you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, the more generous you become. I fear there are many hearing me who, not, who, know, who now know they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. So the solution here, if you think, oh, I don't know if I'm saved, is not, it's not to give money. The solution is now embrace the vision of Christ as he's given to us in the word of God. That you treasure him so much that money is though you hate it in comparison. Because Jesus said you're going to either love one or the other. You're going to love one and hate the other. So we have perhaps maybe the facade of loving Christ but we hate them because we love money. But if you love Christ, you're not going to love money. It's either or. So what does this mean? Here's what this means. If you give $1 joyfully, wishing you could do more, 
That's better than giving a million dollars and griping about it to God. You get that? You give a dollar, wishing you could do more, wanting to do more, doing it with joy in your heart is worth more before God than a million dollars. Griping to God and to the people around church, talking about money, made me feel guilty. I'll give some money. That'll solve my conscience for a little while. Keep your money. It is not worship. You see, that's why as a church, I'm not talking to you to give money because the budget needs it. If that's why you're giving, don't. I'm not in this to try to make sure our church is working well as far as financially. That's Mike's job. That's, that's, that's why I'm preaching. Uh, he's hating me right now. But, you know, my job is to make sure that you worship God. That's his job too. Uh, is making sure that you worship God. And so don't give because you feel like the church needs it. You give because God has done a work in your life and you just want to. You want to. It doesn't matter if you feed all the poor. If you have not love. It's like a resounding gong. It's annoying to God's ears. You think that you're going to be better loved by God because of that? (laughs) Friends, God doesn't love you because of your money or lack of it. He loves you because of grace. You did nothing. You just just existed. You breathed. You did it simply, selfishly. And God extends his love to you because of grace. So you can't come up to God and say, God, I gave you all that money. Why didn't you... You know, make things turn out a little bit better than it did. He said, because that was why you were given. You got to learn it's not about that. It's about the grace of God. So, you know what? If after this sermon, all of you realize, you know what? (laughs) My heart's not right. And you don't give it all next week. Well, at least we're honest before God. And God's... He pays the salary. Okay? He may use you. But as far as what this church wants to do, it's it's before God. And so don't worry about us. Don't worry about the church. You give because your heart wants to. Your heart doesn't want to. Don't do it. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 speaks to this in a mighty powerful way. We'll deal with that and and perhaps next week. Um, But... uh, the cheerfulness, hilariousness is, is, is what's being said there. Um, all right, let's, let's keep on going. Um, verse 5. And this they did. What? They gave out of grace. Not as we hope, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. You see, grace giving is an, an effect, effect, not effect, effect of surrendering to God. It's the whole idea. You've been bought by the grace of God. Nothing belongs to you anymore. Not even the hairs of your head belong to you anymore. It all is His. And so because you first surrendered to God, you notice that the order here, they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then they gave themselves 
to each other, to Paul, gave themselves even to another church in another area. Listen, you know, one of the things why we have church membership is because it reflects the idea of commitment. The whole concept of membership came from the Bible, a member of body. You know, that golf cannot have membership because it's not a body. It flows from a biblical idea of a member of your body. So that concept is a biblical one that uniquely applies to the church. Why do we demand some commitment? Because, well, the Bible says that that's a small thing. That in actuality, we give ourselves to God and we give ourselves to each other. I belong to you. The gift God gives me, it is wrong for me to say, you know what, I just don't feel like preaching today. I don't feel like explaining the word of God to you today. I, you know, catch me maybe uh, another day or so. I might be all right. No. Why? Because that ability belongs to you. That ability belongs to you. What God gifts you with belongs to one another. And so that's what the, the idea here is, is they understand there is a surrender to God and a surrender to one another. And so this grace giving is the effect of what God is doing. It, it's kind of like a... A lightning, all right? Um, it was just, I think it was the last week, this past week we heard some li- thunder, some lightning. It was a little strange. But I remember just a few weeks ago, it, the lightning was just so bad, it woke me up in the middle of a good sleep at night. I was like, man, this is right outside our house. Knocked out one of our appliances or one of our, our little entertainment deals. Um, so how did I know it was lightning? Because my eyes were closed. Well, with lightning always comes thunder. It is an effect of the lightning. And it pounds, when it's close by, it pounds your heart. Listen, where Christ is in a, in a person's life, it is as lightning in their heart, that the effect of it is as thunder coming out in generosity. Where there is no generosity, there is no Christ. Where there is no thunder, there is no presence of lightning around you. And so it is an effect of what's going on. You know, and when we give our life to God, given your future, your past, your present, the money is a little thing. The money is a little thing. And it's not just money. It's time. It's resources. It's, it's like folks giving coats. Uh, I've been blessed this morning already. Uh, some, some of you were generous to me and my wife uh, and to some of the other staff. And I just... I thank God for that. You just need to know, yeah, I thank you, but I thank God for that. Because God used you. And it blessed my heart. So what's the effect of that? It's a domino effect where I am to be a blessing as well, to continue to be a blessing to someone else. Now, this, uh, verse, verse 7, verse 6 and 7 here as we, we read this together. Accordingly, We urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What is he saying? In verse 7, we learn that, that grace, giving, is a fact of spiritual growth. How do you know when you're spiritually growing? Well, notice the the list of of descriptions and actions that he says here. There's going to be faith in your life. 
Your speech is going to change. It's going to reflect the faith in Christ. Your knowledge, your knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the Word of God, the knowledge of what things are glorious changes. Those things worth living to, uh, living for changes. And, and all in your earnestness and sincerity and your love for you, your love for others, we're going to grow. See that you also excel in this act of grace also. Just as I'm going to grow in these areas, then if God is working in my life, there's going to be a growing sense of generosity. A growing sense of generosity. Why? Because you're becoming Christ-like. And Christ-like, Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. Jesus says, life is not about the abundance of things. Paul quotes Jesus in Acts 20, verse 35. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20 says, don't lay up for your treasures in heaven, or treasures on earth, but lay up your treasures in heaven. Or thieves and robbers, they, they can't break in and rust can't destroy these things. It's a, a secure place because where your treasure is, there where your heart will be also. Let me ask you, have you ever wondered how it is that disaster can occur in Indonesia, a tsunami can occur there, and it doesn't really impact us much? Have you ever, have you ever just stopped and thought, man, what kind of callous person am I? It's amazing, when you start giving to the kingdom of God, it goes out to this world because that's the world we live in right now. What if we were supporting believers in Indonesia? And then we hear about a tsunami taking place. Then our heart starts to care, starts to pound. Why? Because we've made Indonesia, for the kingdom of God, our treasure. And so when something happens to God's work and God's kingdom in that area, our heart starts wondering, starts pondering, starts praying, starts caring. Could it very well be that the fact that we have no concern for the world is because we have no treasure in the kingdom of God in this world? And so, it is an effect of spiritual growth, of being Christ-like. It's kind of like your cup flows over. I've got this little um, uh, rain spout, downspout on my getter. My wife gave me a, a couple years ago. It's really neat. It's just like bucket after bucket after little bucket on a chain. And when it really starts downpouring, you know, it fills up one bucket, flows to the next bucket, and keeps on going. So if you can imagine your life <laughs> as that little chain of buckets... And you're underneath Niagara Falls. All right? The grace of God. And we're worried about, oh, I don't know if I can spare some water. I don't know if I've got enough. (laughs) See how absurd that is? But if you could just understand by the eyes of faith that you're before God, it doesn't mean that there's going to be a, uh, that there won't be poverty in your life. But you understand that the poverty is no grounds to exclude generosity. Grace is the basis for generosity. And you know that you serve a God who knows your needs. And even if there seems to be a lack of things, when there's a lack of things, it is to teach us that Christ is still sufficient in the things that are. And to understand that our life is not about those things, be it health, be it materials, be it various 
luxuries that we, we call in our life, or even needs. So let's keep on reading here. Verse, verse 8 and 9. I say this not as command, but to prove by the earnest of others that your love also is genuine. So hear me. I'm not commanding you. I'm not commanding you to give. I'm just asking you, consider Christ and let it change your view of money so that you want to give. And so verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, might become rich. Listen, what is this grace that he keeps talking about? He's been talking about it numbers of times. He says, you've got this grace even when there's trials and afflictions. You've got this grace even when there's poverty, extreme poverty in your life. You've got this grace. What is this grace he's talking about? It's the gospel. It is the fact that Jesus Christ was rich. What do we mean by that? Well, how does God count riches? It's not gold and silver. That's just like dirt. Something he made. He counts it as the presence of God. He was rich. He was in the presence of God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, being found in fashion a man, and humbled himself. He became a man. And then even on the cross, humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, at that moment in time, he forsake the, the most precious, the most precious thing that could ever exist in any human being. The very heart of God, the presence of God was removed from him by God's design, by his design, Jesus' design together, designing this. The richest thing that could ever be experienced was forsaken. So that you could have the presence of God. He became poor so that you might be made rich. Let me ask you this question. When when Jesus Christ was generous to us, was it 10%? It was everything. It was everything. This idea, 10% belongs to God... 90% belongs to me. Where do you get that from? It seems like when Jesus died on the cross, all conditions are off. It all was given to you by God. It has all been bought by Christ. And it will all be his by conquest one day. So deal with that and to say, no, no, that's not 10%. It all belongs to God. And as one of his stewards, he allows me to take care of the needs, me and my family around us. Not so that I can live extravagantly, but live sufficiently. He's done this so that I can give extravagantly. So that I can be a blessing. You see, that's what the gospel is. It doesn't matter who you are. You're not earning salvation. It's been given to you by God's grace. So you can come in here and you're thinking, I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, these folks don't look like me. They can just see what I've been thinking, what I've been doing. They're going to kick me out of here. (laughs) Listen, our doors need to be open, as open as God's grace is. And God's grace says to you, yeah, that's exactly who I'm talking and who I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the self-righteous one. I'm not looking for the one who thinks they've got it religiously. I'm looking for the one who understands they're a mess. That's who God wants to work. And he says, I can work with that person who knows there's a poverty, a spirit about them. Blessed are them, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because they mourn 
their sin. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're, they're meek and they are under submission of God. Those are the ones that I can work with. Are you that? Can you, can you be that? Do you know that? That's who God's wanting to work with, you right now. Now, we keep on reading. So we look down, verse 13. For I do not mean, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that your abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He says, the reason why you have an abundance is that you will be a blessing. And he brings out that idea even more in chapter 9, verse 15. The reason that you have these things, the reason he's given you seed to you as a sower is that you can do the good work of God, that you can walk in. And this is what Lonnie Riley has been describing this past week. Didn't that sound marvelous? Didn't it sound freeing to have this mentality to say, if God gives it to me, then I'll give it to you. It hinges on a few things, like you're not living for yourself anymore, and that all that you see now is free and open for God's disposal to bless others. And that's kind of frightening, isn't it? If you're using that as your identity. All right? And, and so there is, there's a freedom found in this. And so it's the idea of being a blessing. He speaks, he makes an alliteration to, allusion to Exodus chapter 16, verse 18, about the days of manna when folks were collecting manna, the needs for each day. And he says, you know what? God, God could take care of a million people, a million plus people. Yeah, he knows what you need to. Can he provide for you? Do you believe that? And when he does more than that, it's so that you can be a blessing. Our church, the whole idea is that we could be a blessing by presenting the gospel, by living the gospel, and demonstrating at all costs that the gospel is worth it. To Nightdale, to East Wake, uh, to this side of Raleigh, to have the world in view. And I'm, you know, I, I praise God that God has done such work. He is making the idea of a greenhouse of the Great Commission a reality. It is a prayer that this is happening. We've got people now in India right now, and there's just phenomenal work being done right now. We've got Rachel. Uh, she's, uh, she's headed to the southern Sudan, I understand, this past week, uh, and being there for a couple years, uh, uh, end of January. There's other people right now, that young folks, who are considering praying with their families, and, and it's on their heart, God's speaking to them. I mean, there's already the Hustlers, there's the Randolphs, there's others that God is doing. I praise God for that, because we are meant to be a blessing for the world. It's like as we did yesterday, to go and visit people and pray with them to say, there is a God that you can turn your heart to and all your needs to. We believe this. We want you to know this. And so we focus and we pray for Hydro. We pray, pray for Minga Creek. We desire this for them in their life. To be a blessing. Now, the reason why we don't do fundraisers is because the preciousness of grace giving. There's a lot of reasons, but I just want to focus on that one right now. Grace giving is to be a huge extension of God working in love in our hearts, an expression of love, an expression of faith given out to others. Fundraising comes in and says, oh yeah, that's not needed anymore. Because we've got this nice little way 
of getting money because after all the church needs money. The problem with that is the focus is all wrong. It's not about the church's need. It's about the need of our heart to learn giving. And I find that fundraisers are kind of like termites that just undermine the foundation. And that's just one reason. But I think it's the most important reason because my job as a pastor is not to make sure that all the light bills are, are paid. It's good that we do that. And if we don't do it, maybe we need to get rid of some lights. But my job is to teach the Bible so that you'll know faith and you'll know that Christ is sufficient. And I want to jealously guard to make sure that nothing undermines that in our church body. Not to mention what we're saying to the community. That's a whole nother argument there. But this is the most important thing. Let me ask you this. Just, just imagine with me. Five minutes ago, you just died. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what your plan for lunch is, but you know, it's not happening. Trick or treat, candy? Yeah, don't worry about the gate weight gain on that. Um, work, house, car, your plan for the future, your children, inheritance, taxes, bills, totally obsolete now. Five minutes ago. So what do you think now about how you spent your money? past week, month, year. Five minutes ago, you just died. It's an interesting hypothetical. But it could be a reality for some. So why don't we believe that? Why don't we live like there's a thing called death? And understand that it's not about all these things that America says is to be about. Why don't we say, you know what, America? The dream for America sounds good if there wasn't death. The American dream sounds great if there is no God. American dream that sounds wonderful except for the fact that I believe there is an eternal kingdom. And that this world is a very quick and passing thing. And all these resources can matter for eternity if I give them to God. I've, I've shared a couple of thoughts. What if you start imagining yourself and all the stuff that you see and just kind of put a mental note, soon to be burned? How does that affect you? But the other thing I started doing is, is asking myself, what is this substance doing to my heart? What is it doing to my heart? There'll be opportunities to give all throughout your day. And you have to make decisions. A lot of times we just don't say, I'm not giving anything. But ask yourself, what does it matter if I keep this object or keep this whatever versus giving it? What difference will it do in my heart? You'll find that as you trust in God and give, It has so much more meaning when you give it away 
There's a joy that economic downturns cannot take away. There is a value in your heart, in your life, that cannot be robbed by the market downturns. You willing to try that? You willing to believe it? So what's it doing to your heart? Let's pray.